Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very exciting episode. Joining me on the podcast is Dr. Michael Mendez. Michael is an assistant professor of environmental planning and policy at the University of California, Irvine. We'll discuss some of Michael's research looking at how climate change and wildfires impact undocumented workers in California. We'll learn the unique challenges these workers face and how climate change will make their situation worse. Michael will also share his recommendations on how government and local community planners can address some of the long-standing inequities that undocumented workers face. We even chat about the potential opportunity for true immigration reform through holistic adaptation planning. This was a fantastic conversation and relevant for all types of disaster planning. I hope you enjoy. It's been a while, but I heard recently from a university professor who was using America Adapts episodes in his college curricula. I know professors listen frequently to the podcast. Just a reminder, consider using the podcast as part of your coursework. Trust me, your students will appreciate it. There's a web page with an embedded player for each episode, just in case your students don't have a favorite podcast app and regularly listen to podcasts. The archive covers a ton of subjects, urban planning, national security, public health, climate communications, you name it, we cover it. Okay, upcoming episodes. We'll discover how Colorado is approaching climate adaptation. And I'm collaborating with the Natural Resources Defense Council and the Anthropocene Alliance on an episode where we talk with community members impacted firsthand by major flooding events and what actions they are taking in response. Also, Dr. Catherine Mock from the University of Miami joins to discuss the recently released IPCC report in the chapter on adaptation. Good stuff on the way. Hey, have you heard? Climate scientists are reporting that... It's now or never to get the Earth's rising temperature under control. We need to reach a net zero carbon footprint in the next 25 years or face worsening consequences. I just watched this amazing new documentary that I highly recommend called Solving for Zero. It's based on Bill Gates' best-selling book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. It features innovations and the science and people behind them in five major industries that make up the majority of our carbon footprint. And it brings attention to some innovative, hopeful solutions. You know, I love hopeful solutions, guys, to help us get where we need to be. It was interesting to learn about the Ocean Bird Project. They're combining modern technology with wind power to cut emissions from massive cargo ships by up to 90%. And it was fascinating to hear how the organization CIMMYT is developing drought-resistant, flood-resistant, and pet-resistant crops that can save the lives of millions. And it's probably time we all started to learn more about these technologies so we can figure out how to support these changes. I highly recommend you check out Solving for Zero, and I'm looking forward to its companion series, The Search for Climate Innovation, available to stream on Wondrium. Wondrium is a subscription video service that is focused on making you a better you. A complete line of audio and video courses on hundreds of topics taught by university professors. Documentaries to help you learn more about the world around you. Video tutorials to teach you new hobbies like photography, cooking, crafting, and the physical health and mental wellness content. All in one subscription service. All their content is world-class and credible. I've seen it. It's great stuff. Presented by professors, teachers, experts who all know what they're doing. And it's always ad-free. Okay, you can sign up for Wondrium today and start by checking out Solving for Zero. Wondrium is offering my listeners a free trial of unlimited access. All right, guys, that's a great opportunity. So check it out. You can do this and you don't have to commit a single dollar for up to 14 days. To get this offer, visit wondrium.com slash adapts. Again, that's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash adapts. Sign up today. 
And I'm going to make it simple for you. There's a link in my show notes. Look down at your show notes, click it, and go explore. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back. Today, we have a very exciting episode. Joining me is Dr. Michael Mendez. Michael is an assistant professor of environmental planning and policy at the University of California, Irvine. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. I'm really excited. I haven't talked about this issue much at all on my podcast, so I'm bringing you on. You are knee-deep in all this, but let's first give people some context of who you are. You're there at UC Irvine, but what are some of your research areas? So broadly, my research looks at the intersection of climate change, public health, and environmental justice, specifically how environmental inequities, if it's from climate change, climate-induced disasters, are disproportionately affecting low-income communities and people of color. Do you have a history of getting into these? I mean, I've, I've read a bit of your bio, but I kind of want you to share that. But just, how did you get into this area? How did you decide to study? And, you know, even out there, you're working with different groups. But it, what's this longer history trying to get into this? Well, I really come from this from an embodied lived experience. I grew up in Los Angeles and primarily Latino immigrant communities that faced multiple environmental threats. I saw on a daily basis the inequities in our built and natural environments, and that really motivated me to question how these disparate environmental inequities originated to develop alternatives and to imagine new environmental futures. So I was really struck by community groups, community activists really pushing back on the inequities that they were experiencing and their families and their children were experiencing at the local neighborhood level. So when I do my brief introduction, sometimes I include more of a nugget of maybe some of your background, but I was looking at your sheet. I'm like, oh my goodness, I could be here for five minutes just explaining all the different things that you're involved in. Maybe there's a few things. And I think it's really important too. You know, people think of professors, ivory tower, but you really are out there sharing your research. You're on various panels and committees. Could you maybe give us a few highlights in, in some of those, like, I guess, work outside the university? And that experience growing up in these environmental justice communities, again, primarily low-income communities of color that are affected, experiencing multiple forms of inequities, led me to pursue a career in urban and environmental planning to try to find alternatives to these inequities and help other communities, not only in my own backyard, but throughout the state and throughout the country and increasingly globally now as well. That led me to major in urban planning as an undergraduate, then get a master's degree in urban and environmental planning at MIT. And when I graduated, the local assembly member, who was the youngest woman ever elected to the state legislature, was really enthusiastic and happy that somebody from her district, from the area that she represented, was studying environmental injustices and environmental planning. So right when I graduated, two weeks after I graduated, I got a job with her and moved to Sacramento to work on these environmental policy issues at a statewide level. And that I did that for about 10 years or so. I worked in the legislature. I worked as a consultant. I worked I worked as a lobbyist. I worked as a, a gubernatorial appointee to various regulatory boards. I currently sit on the, the California Regional Water Quality Control Board, which represents Region 4, which is the Los Angeles region. And we represent 11 million people in both Los Angeles and Ventura counties on water quality issues. Increasingly, I 
I work on policy relevant research where I connect my research and theory together. If it's an applied sense of working on these regulatory boards or working on the ground with community groups developing research issues and particularly on climate induced disasters. So I've been studying for the last several years. After my first book, I wanted to change my research direction a little bit and focus on on the ground impacts from climate change, particularly climate induced disasters like wildfires. And I started working with migrant migrant rights groups and environmental justice groups that were advocating that more resources in terms of disaster preparedness, knowledge, planning resources before disaster hits, but also, of course, when, when a disaster strikes and after disaster to ensure that undocumented Latino and indigenous migrants, in particular farm workers, are treated equitably in these disaster events. Your experience is the applied nature of what you did. That's just so awesome. And, and what you, you now are a professor. And so that, that's fantastic. And so we're going to spend some time on a paper you've written on that topic you just mentioned. And I'm going to read this here. The Invisible Victims of Disaster, Understanding the Vulnerability of Undocumented Latino, Latina, and Indigenous Immigrants. Okay, first off, when was that published? That was first published in 2020, in November of 2020. And we're going to go through, because I, I want to give people really some fundamentals here. And, and within that article, you know, you cover a lot of ground, but let's just start off with things. What are some of the most dangerous impacts of wildfire? And people, you make a good point in the article of like, it's not what you just assume it, it is. Yeah, and I guess I could give, I want to give a little bit of background. You know, in my previous research agenda, I was looking at climate advocacy, uh, climate change mitigation policies and how environmental justice groups were really inserting themselves in this sort of elite policymaking process, if, even if it's at City Hall or if it's at the state capitol, to really recenter our climate change programs, particularly our mitigation programs in the early 2000s around equity, public health, co-benefits, economic development. So all the fundamentals that we think of the Green New Deal were being done 20 years before the Green uh, New Deal. So I often say that there's nothing new about the Green New Deal because community groups, environmental justice groups have been doing this for nearly 20 years. So and that's when I published my first book, Climate Change from the Streets, How Conflict and Collaboration Strengthened the Environmental Justice Movement. That was published in 2020 by Yale University Press. And again, it looks at this prospective approach that environmental justice and other types of activists are trying to engage and, and assert themselves in the policymaking process. From that book, my research agenda evolves from policymaking around climate pollution mitigation that is prospective to adapting socially vulnerable populations from the immediate impacts of climate change. And I felt that this shift was a shift in focus was necessary because the impacts are happening sooner than projected and creating this public health emergency, particularly for the most disempowered and voiceless populations. So in this new research project on wildfires and other climate-induced disasters, I really ask how these climate-induced disasters such as heat waves, drought, and wildfires exasperate existing inequalities for undocumented Latino and indigenous migrants, again, some of the most disempowered and voiceless populations. In this approach, I'm exploring the methods that disasters influence migration patterns and interactions between people and place that limit life opportunities, facilitate movements, 
and impact public health. In a nutshell, we often hear this idea about climate migration or climate refugees. And we see a lot of movement happening from Mexico and Central America. In particular, my research is focusing on Southern Mexico, indigenous populations that, of course, are experiencing a lot of push factors in terms of their migration, such as growing economic inequality, violence, drug conflicts, and trade wars. The situation now is compounded by environmental decline and changing climactic events, particularly in agricultural and indigenous regions of central and southern Mexico, as I mentioned earlier. However, when these Latino and indigenous Mexican people migrate to places like California for better life opportunities, they do not leave behind the disproportionate impact climate change will have on their bodies and their families. It often follows them. So this research project is looking at sort of that global migration, climate migration process where they're experiencing back in their homeland, either through drought, heat waves and other soil erosion. And then they come to the United States and they're, they're impacted by climactic events that are different in context, but also disproportionately affects their bodies, their livelihoods and their families. In this case, I'm particularly focusing on wildfires and agricultural workers. Maybe you could give us some background. It might seem obvious, but it probably isn't. I even got a little confused and maybe you could define an undocumented migrant. And then I, I kind of had to look up the undocumented indigenous immigrants. And you sort of explained just now who they are, but could you could have, I guess, give a little bit more background on who these people are. And I mean, those are you know technical terms that we'll be referring to through the whole podcast. In general, an undocumented individual is, is somebody that is in the United States that's not here legally. They're not authorized to, to be a resident or let alone a, be an authorized worker. So when we say undocumented, these individuals are lacking the proper permissions and legal documents to be residents and workers in the United States. And when I mention indigenous Mexican individuals, I make a in the, in the research that I do, I make the clear distinction between Latino and or Hispanic individuals and indigenous individuals. So these are indi- indigenous individuals that come from communities such as the Mixteco, Triqui, Chatino, Maya, and Zapotec. So these are, they are not Hispanic, they are not Latino, but they are indigenous, they have different cultures, they have different histories, and of course, different languages that are quite distinct from Spanish-speaking Latinos or individuals that are of mixed race uh, living in, in Mexico. And those, it's quite important to understand from an intersectional approach that what type of impacts are these individuals going to have when a disaster happens? And, and oftentimes, it could be quite distinct from Spanish-speaking Latinos. Why are undocumented immigrants particularly vulnerable to wildfires? And I guess this from the physical and health aspect, we'll kind of get into the more social aspects later. Because of the very nature of of being undocumented, they have sort of this pre-disaster pre-disaster disparities in terms of inequality, in terms of income levels, education, language access, and then, of course, exploitation because of the very nature that they're not authorized to be in this country to live and work. Employers are often will exploit them, take advantage of them. So in their everyday lives, they're unable to fight for their basic occupational health and safety rights, let alone their civil rights and housing and other types of basic necessities that we all take for granted as U.S. citizens or legal residents. So when a disaster happens, those inequalities are only exasperated and they experience this high performance of marginalization. 
So in this paper, which I should mention is a co-produced uh, co paper, it takes a co-productionist approach. So I, my co-authors are migrant rights and indigenous migrant rights groups as well as environmental justice groups that have lived and worked during these wildfire disasters. So they're my co-authors. They were key in our research design, data gathering, analysis, and of course, our policy briefings that we have done for various stakeholders. And then in this research we really show how when these wildfires are happening, these individuals are asked to often enter into mandatory evacuation zones that are considered hazardous to the general population. And they're asked to enter into these zones to safeguard the crops, wine grapes, and other types of precious crops from smoke and ash. And in the wine industry in Northern California in particular, there's concern when smoke permeates into the, the skin of grapes, affect the, the taste and smell of wine, which they call smoke taint. And so there, there's this push to try to, in the height of a wildfire, when the, the smoke is likely the most toxic, they're asked to enter into these mandatory evacuation zones or adjacent to these evacuation zones that have heavy and toxic smoke to, to safeguard the crops, harvest the crops before that smoke permeates and creates smoke taint. But at the same time, these individuals are entering to, to these areas, many of them undocumented. There is no concern about how that smoke is also tainting their lungs. And they're not provided with N95 masks. They're not provided with goggles or other safety equipment that could protect them from the toxic conditions that occur during wildfires. So that's one key aspect from the occupational health and safety standard. These individuals, because of their undocumented status, if, if they get sick, can't no longer go to work. They're not, they're ineligible for unemployment insurance. If their vineyard or farm uh, gets burned because of the wildfire, they're still not eligible for unemployment insurance. If they get sick, their children get sick. They don't have health care because of their undocumented status. If their homes are burned down um, during the wildfires, they're, they're ineligible for federal disaster assistance funds through FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, because there's an explicit prohibition from undocumented individuals, even though that they're essential workers and they're helping safeguard our agricultural economy and our other service sectors, they're, they're ineligible for uh, FEMA assistance. So that puts them at a real disadvantage after a disaster for their recovery and their resilience. So th those are just some key highlights that undocumented immigrants are experienced during wildfires. And it's important to understand that political choices are intentionally being made that are safeguarding some populations over others. When disasters in California are not an uncommon event, heat waves, drought, obviously earthquakes, that is, and now wildfires happen year after year. And these are not unforeseeable events and undocumented individuals, indigenous ones, including indigenous undocumented individuals are, have been living years, if not decades in some of these uh, regions, yet the local government, state, county, and city officials have intentionally ch chosen not to allocate disaster preparedness resources to them before disaster, let alone during a disaster, and oftentimes now after disaster. So those are some of the key inequities that we see happening. And some of them are occurring because of systemic racism and cultural norms of who is considered a worthy disaster victim. And again, in this context, undocumented Latino and indigenous migrants are not considered worthy disaster victims that should be provided safeguards before, during, and after a disaster. 
I want to come back to that FEMA issue too. I, I didn't realize that, but just some of the terminology used in here, I'm curious, and you just mentioned it, but I would like to maybe give some brief definitions and we kind of go from there because the adaptation space is still relatively new. New terms are being used, new concepts. And I'm just curious if these concepts are sort of making their way into the adaptation planning, but you, you just mentioned a worthy disaster victim. I think that's very interesting. And then if you could define contextual vulnerability and then slow violence, those two terms I thought were really fascinating on how you used these in this paper. And I'm not sure if I'm seeing that show up in other types of adaptation planning, but obviously very relevant. Excellent questions. And this idea of worthy disaster victim, I know that in the literature, there's a big movement away from calling individuals victims and towards thinking of Brazilians only. I'm using this as well as our co-authors are are intentionally using the word victims because our argument here is that undocumented migrants are not even allowed to be called victims. They're rendered invisible in the context of disaster policy and and disaster uh, relief infrastructure. They're even invisible as that disempowered word of victim. And so that's why we really want to intentionally highlight that aspect. And then, yes, in terms of climate adaptation planning is looking at sort of these intersectional approaches and looking at some of the most disempowered or marginalized or stigmatized populations and how these sort of disaster events are affecting them on multiple levels and, and through multiple avenues. And so in our research, we really wanted to highlight that in particular, as you mentioned, that contextual vulnerability, understanding that climate change, the climactic events, as I started earlier, the climactic events are global in nature and is creating this these climate migration or climate refugees. And as they leave their home countries and then come to the United States, those disparate impacts that they're experiencing in their home countries, they're also experienced here in the United States. And that cyclical process is continuing to happen over and over. So contextual vulnerability is really understanding that climate change happens in large society and that there's political institutions, social norms that and economic, socioeconomic factors that render people vulnerable or socially vulnerable to some of these disasters. And again, because these individuals, many of them are Latino, indigenous, their immigration status, their gender. We also see in the fields that occupational health and safety standards, for example, like N95 masks in the early years of the wildfires in 2017 and 2018, we have accounts that they were only being given to men and not to women. Perhaps here, the implication here is that the myodromos or the supervisor, the contractors were seeing men as a more valuable worker than the women. So that contextual focus is trying to understand is how, where are these individuals situated in our society? What, what is their sort of socioeconomic status, SES, and how does that influence their, either their preparedness, their disparate impacts during the disaster, and their ability or their adaptive capacity to bounce back from disaster or to thrive in a resilience framework to be even have a better life outcomes after a disaster. So that contextual vulnerability is, again, uh, trying to understand the social, political, economic factors that render these individuals uh, vulnerable, and in this case, render them invisible to our disaster policy and uh, disaster infrastructure. I don't, I don't know if you just kind of quickly, but slow violence. Yes, and, and then slow violence is kind of taking this idea 
uh, Paul Farmer, who unfortunately just died about a month ago, uh, this idea of structural violence. Again, it's, it's very similar to contextual uh, vulnerability, but really understanding how these factors of socioeconomic status or social, political, and economic institutions are creating this form of violence uh, that's structural, that's embedded in these institutions that are creating harm and havoc to these individuals on their everyday lives. So that's the idea from Paul Farmer, uh, who is a public health researcher and doctor who coined the term structural violence. Other scholars have taken this idea and applied it to slow violence, to environmental conditions such as climate change. So climate change, oftentimes an absence of a disaster are a slow moving event that happened over time, day after day or season after season. And cumulatively, they also represent a violent interaction to human bodies, particularly to those that are more marginalized. So slow violence is acknowledging that all the events, our institutions, our policies that are interacting with slow moving stressors like climate change still enact a form of physical and social violence on individuals and specific individuals and their bodies. Okay, thanks for that. I, and I just and like these terms because I think a lot of people doing adaptation planning, they generically, they're using climate equity, environmental justice, and it's good to have some more specific terminology, I think, for them to even think about and even explain what they're, they're trying to do. And so I, I thought those were some great terms that you're using. I want to go back to the FEMA issue because, listen, I don't know all of FEMA's policies, but it, it's just pretty outrageous. And I just wonder how the practical nature of that, they can't provide support. And of course, as you'd mentioned, you know, it's rooted in racism and actually downright cruel. Doesn't it kind of work against FEMA that when they go into a community and I've never had to deal with FEMA disaster. I lived in Florida, but I've never had to just, you know, work with FEMA in in a disaster situation. But how does that actually work in practical terms? You have a population, there's a wildfire and FEMA comes in and helps with a response and literally like the undocumented workers just stay away. They're not even there getting any sort of supporting basic housing and food and all that. It's just they literally can't help them. That That's how it kind of unfolds. Exactly. Yes. It, it, there's explicit ex- exclusions in federal law and policy as well that doesn't allow them to provide aid and direct assistance, primarily monetary funding to these individuals or any type of governmental assistance that can help these individuals. The state in, in some places, like the state of California, particularly during, during the COVID-19 pandemic, did create an undocumented uh, fund to provide direct assistance to individuals that were affected from the COVID-19 pandemic. And that was modeled off of the work that civil society had done, primarily, obviously, migrant rights groups, indigenous migrant rights groups and environmental justice groups and other social justice groups that came together and created private disaster relief funds because not even uh, the Red Cross or Salvation Army was providing any substantive type of, of funding or resources for this community. So in my two study sites, the, uh, which I did not mention earlier, are Santa Barbara and Ventura County, the Central Coast. And then my new site is in Sonoma County in Northern California. Many of you may know that as the elite wine region of California. It's right next to Napa. So Napa and Sonoma are the most elite wine countries in the United States. And in these two regions, the Northern and, and Central Coast of California, these groups had to come together because there was no government response. Even at the state and local level, everyone thinks California is so progressive and accepting of Latinos. But for the most part, there's still a major gap for undocumented individuals to access these funds. So we see the inequality at the federal level. 
And, and it's important to note also that uh, while a single undocumented individual is ineligible for FEMA funding assistance, if there's a household and there's one legal resident or U.S. citizen, that one person that is legal or a citizen is able to get FEMA funding for the entire household. But often the cases, individuals don't want to even do that because FEMA is housed under the Department of Homeland Security, which also houses ICE. And there's fear about engaging in that application process, particularly under the Trump administration. There was a clear disclosure on the FEMA funding application that said that this information may be shared with the Department of Homeland Security. So there there was that fear that even eligible households didn't want to access that fund because of sort of that structural violence that was embedded within uh, FEMA itself in the application process, as well as fear, particularly under the Trump administration, of what's called the public charge rule. So if you're you're an individual that's undocumented and you want to eventually get amnesty or eventually become authorized to be in this country, when you're in that immigration process review, they want to see if you are taking any federal government services that you're ineligible for, from welfare to social services, food stamps, and then, of course, FEMA fund. So there's that fear that uh, even though disasters are excluded from that under law, there's also fear that eventually that policy might be changed. You explain that, though. You said the disasters are excluded from that, that you could provide disaster relief, but people aren't get- taking it anyway because of that fear of just being exposed. Yes, correct. So that public charge rule doesn't apply to uh, disaster funding, particularly for individuals that have a green card or, or obviously if they're U.S. citizen, they're eligible, but they're able to get for the funding for their entire household. But again, many individuals, even if they're eligible for that funding for their entire household, because they have family members or individuals that are unauthorized, undocumented, uh, they don't even want to get that funding because they're afraid they're going to become part of a deport list. Boy, that seems like a major policy reform that should be happening is just decoupling FEMA from ICE and all these other things. It's just that it's in- insanity because I would I, I don't know what FEMA's charter is, but I imagine it's like getting these communities back to their previous, you know, the idea of resilience. And so the notion of just ignoring the undocumented workers who play such a critical part that they'd have their one hand tied behind their back. And I'm sure there's plenty of people of FEMA who'd like to to provide those services, but it just seems I, this is it's so illogical. It's, you're preventing that community to truly rebounding if you're ignoring these these migrants, right? No, no, exactly. And even at our federal and state level, like we we see even our state governments are to some extent ignoring this population. As I mentioned at the, uh, the top of our podcast is that the individual are asked to, to enter into these smoky, toxic job sites. Some of them are in mandatory evacuation zones. So some of them are asked to do this at very low pay. And let alone, they're not even offered hazard pay to risk their lives, the tainting of their lungs and their bodies. And there's no post-exposure testing to see how these this toxic smoke, breathing all of it, is affecting their bodies and the long term. And let alone, there's not a proper air quality monitoring. So oftentimes, these in- employers may be looking at monitors that are at stationary air monitors that the federal or the state government may have. And they, these could be miles away. So you have no idea of how hazardous the air quality is on a particular job site because there's no requirement for employers to have any disaster plans that would include real-time mobile air quality monitoring. So that's just another aspect. No hazard pay, no post-exposure health care, or no proper air quality monitoring. 
I think in California, at least, there's a lot of groups, community service groups that are working with undocumented workers and in this wildfire issue. But do you see that these local groups are thinking about climate change? Are they even talking about adaptation using that sort of rhetoric? Are you seeing that yet? They're not using climate adaptation. They're using climate change and disaster. So which depends who you ask. Are there climate-induced disasters? Some people say yes. Others want strict attribution science to prove it. But at least in terms of the advocates and even the policymakers that, that were interacting, again, this is a co-productionist research I co-wrote and I present findings with the community groups that are on the ground. They increasingly link climate change and disaster, the disaster event, but not necessarily using our scientific type of uh, terminology. But yes, they're very aware, particularly, again, that sort of that global migration from climate migration that they themselves will uh, mention and the interviews and interactions that I've had with them, they will mention how climate change is affecting Mexico and Central America. And of course, it's following them here in their own work and in their own livelihoods and their health. And in terms of of migrant rights organizations, a lot of them are, are being forced to work on climate change and disaster planning. They're becoming de facto disaster experts, not because they wanted to, but they're forced to because there's no federal, there's limited state and local resources for these undocumented migrants and farm workers. So they're forced to step up, even uh, though this is outside the scope or mission of their migrant rights organization. And they have small budgets as well, but increasingly they're expending a lot of resources, staff time and energy to disaster planning. And I guess that would extend to, of course, now uh, climate adaptation planning. But now we're talking more about having more prospective, more proactive planning around climate change and climate adaptation, because a lot of this work, as I think you're alluding to, is very reactive. And fire season after fire season is reactive. And these individuals are trying to work together a network from Northern California, Central to Central Coast to Southern California is trying to work together and try to have a convenings and strategy sessions and advocacy sessions about how can they pull their all their experiences, even though California is a, a really big state, as many of you know, and very different geographies and different types of experiences. But how can they learn from each other and, and create a disaster network around uh, among the uh, migrant population? And I think the COVID-19 pandemic has accelerated that process because these wildfires have always existed in California. They started, the uptake started happening in 2015, and then definitely in 2017 and 2019 to our to current time. And through the last uh, seven or so years, these individuals are have started to build capacity and understanding and expertise around these issues, because again, they were forced to. And then when the COVID-19 pandemic happened, the impacts, of course, were disproportionately felt by farm workers and other undocumented migrants. But in my conversations with these groups, many of them acknowledged, had it not been for the wildfires that occurred three or four years earlier, the impacts would have decimated the community because these groups had sort of a ragtag ad hoc disaster infrastructure network uh, that they had been building over uh, several years of these over wildfire seasons and these wildfires impacting their communities and their constituents. So they had some type of, even though if it wasn't robust, they had some type of a disaster infrastructure that they relied on from wildfires when the COVID-19 pandemic happened. 
And based on that sort of multiple forms of compounding of disasters, that is, individuals are now, I just had a, had a meeting with some groups in the Central Coast, California, migrant rights groups that are talking about how they want to be more proactive now around this disaster and climate sphere. I don't know if you've looked at it, but you, we, we, the colleagues at Dr. Elizabeth uh, Matsutut, I realize her name. She was just my previous guest from the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, Matsutsi, Matsutsi, Elizabeth Matsutsi. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, Lizzie's great. Uh, right. I went to, um, my, I did my PhD with Lizzie. Yes. She just, uh, we, we just chatted about the survey that they did. And one of the questions they were asking, it was all the Western states, but California was a big part of that. And so they were looking at the organizational capacity to think about climate risk, climate change. And it was interesting. And I'm, I'm wondering, did you get a chance to look at that? Because I think a lot of groups probably think they have more expertise than they actually do. Did you Did you happen to look at that survey? No, I haven't. Yeah. If you could send it to me later, I'd love to uh, take a look at it. Yeah. It's very relevant because I mean, there are a lot of California groups represented, but I think that there's, they're wearing two hats like, all right, we don't have time to think about climate change, but, it, but also like, of course, we're thinking about climate change and we have this sort of skill set and there's mixed messages. And so it, it was an interesting sort of survey, just kind of getting a lay of the land. So uh, yeah, I'll definitely send it your way. Yeah. And I, I think that goes into the work that the micro rights groups, they're very aware that they, they have the real world experience of living through and living through disasters. So they have that lived embodied experience. But yes, uh, they know that they're lacking in terms of the traditional infrastructure that you need in this uh, disaster relief infrastructure that's needed and sort of it, particularly in that planning preparedness stage. In my conversations with them, they're very aware of that and they they want to have better strategy around how to get more involved at, at the state, county and local levels around disaster and climate adaptation. And because they know their limitations, but they also know that they have to coalesce together and build a coalition throughout the state to have some type of uh, empowerment and to have a larger voice um, in these policymaking processes. I found that there were so many interesting rabbit holes that I could go down with your paper and we'll, we'll see about this one. But I thought it was just so interesting in it's just not about agriculture workers, but undocumented workers, you know, they work as gardeners and they work as housekeepers and they do all sorts of things for wealthy people living in California. And so when there's a wildfire, let's say even homes are destroyed, they lose their jobs, they they lose their income there. And it occurred to me that, again, there's this issue that they sort of can't raise their hand saying, you know, we need some support because they're worried that potentially being deported. And it kind of got me thinking about flipping that sort of narrative, like it's those wealthy landowners who, too, probably don't want to acknowledge that they have undocumented workers working for them. But if there was some way that they could anonymously kind of say, all right, these are some people that need support. But are we going to be tagged with we hired undocumented workers? You see what I'm saying? Like, it seems like there could be some reform for even these wealthy landowners to be part of the solution. And they're not going to get their hands slapped either. There's you see a question. That I guess what I'm getting at is just like there's an opportunity there that I think everyone involved doesn't want to acknowledge each other's existence. And, you know, at least the people losing their homes and that we're employing all these people, maybe there's policy ways to encourage to say we did have these people working for us that we want them to be eligible and we're not going to be tied to hiring illegal workers. No, most definitely. I, I think our multiple levels of government has to be involved. Our 
Our migrant rights and social justice organizations need to be involved. Civil society, including the Red Cross and other foundations that are involved in the disaster sphere. And of course, the employers themselves have to be a key element in reform and ensuring that these individuals are not exploited before a disaster happens or during it and after a disaster. Of course, as I mentioned earlier, when a disaster hit, it only exasperates existing inequality that we see in society. So if you really want to tackle disaster risk reduction, it starts with the social integration of migrants before disaster. That's in, in our social systems and our employment system, as well as our social safety net. And I remember a great quote that one resident of Santa Barbara told me about undocumented migrants, that they are the invisible population living and working behind the Bugnavilia curtain. And they are struggling to survive in a region of wealth and prosperity. And that Bugnavilia curtain is an idiom that references that fast growing evergreen vine that you see with an explosive magenta color that adorns the gates of mansions and farms for added privacy. So again, these individuals are living behind that Bugnavilia curtain in some of the region, some of our country's most wealthiest areas, and essentially that they're being rendered invisible, not because they're literally invisible, but they're rendered invisible because of our laws and policies. And again, those cultural norms about U.S. citizenship and who we considered a worthy disaster victim or even a worthy worker in our, their everyday lives. Okay, so I want to pivot to just another area of adaptation. But before we go there, before we leave the paper, you had a series of policy recommendations. I don't know if you can kind of quickly go through the, the high points there, just so people out there listening thinking, all right, what can what can be done? You actually have some policy prescriptions in the paper. Yes, first and foremost, I think we all need to be honest that these individuals again, are, are not going anywhere. They've been here for decades, if not multiple generations. They're a, a vital part of our society, our economy, and how our country keep running, and, and particularly in the food sec- uh, sector. And these disasters, again, and, and throughout the, the country, some of my research findings uh, are very applicable to hurricanes and other types of disasters uh, that you see in other parts of the United States. And really acknowledge that these individuals need help before and during and after disaster. And first and foremost, the federal government needs to rescind that prohibition of undocumented migrants from federal disaster assistance funds. In the absence of that, particularly because our divided and Congress, you know, state governments like California should establish a permanent disaster relief fund. Yes, very happy that that Governor Newsom had a one-time disaster relief fund for undocumented migrants. He provided $50 million and $75 million was provided by philanthropic organizations. And that money was expended less than a month. So that just shows you the need that was the high level of need that was happening during covid and so there should be a permanent disaster relief fund for the for this community, because, again, disasters in California are not unforeseeable events. We know they're going to happen again and again. That's the first and foremost hazard pay. It should be if individuals are asked to enter into dangerous zones, particularly evacuation zones. They should be compensated for their time should they choose to want to enter into these zones on their own volition. People need to work. I really understand that. 
So maybe acknowledging that they should provide an extra pay because they're doing that. Oftentimes, some of these individuals may feel pressured to do this work without any compensation because that they feel that they don't enter into these dangerous zones and help out the harvest uh, when the, the employers really need it. They're going to get blacklisted the next time around because again, contractors for the most part are controlling the hiring and firing of many of these individuals. And they're afraid if they don't enter into these zones uh, during fires, then they won't get jobs later on after the fires are gone. Others would be ensuring that we have language justice. Uh, we haven't had a chance to really talk about language uh, language justice issues in California. When we first saw this fire in the Central Coast in Santa Barbara and Santa Barbara counties, they didn't tr- uh, translate any of the information into Spanish, let alone any indigenous languages. Again, everyone thinks about California as the Latinization, that they're very welcoming, very Spanish-speaking individuals are integrated in well throughout our society. But in this case, uh, the, the county governments had not signed, not even one person to do live translations of emergency information, shelter, boil alerts, air quality warnings, None of it in Spanish or in real time. And again, uh, people think that's a given in California, but that's not really the case. And so these community groups had to really step up. Um, they had to do all the translations either on social media, um, text communication sites like WhatsApp that many migrant rights organizations use, also using uh, their low power radios, low wattage radio stations to translate this into Spanish and other indigenous languages like Mistec. When the fire was first occurring in Santa Barbara and Ventura counties, the Thomas Fire in 2017 and 2018, they didn't have any live translations for the, uh, the for the first 10 days. And at one point, they had one sentence on some of the emergency information. If you can't translate, uh, if you can't read this, it was translated in Spanish. If you can't read this, please send it to someone that can translate it for you. About a day or two later, they had a Google Translate button to translate the, the emergency alerts and the information into Spanish. And we know a couple of years ago, Google Translate was not that great. It's still not that great. And it was translating words in English, such as wildfire, to hairbrush in Spanish. So it just shows the lack of, of language access, language justice for these individuals in, in Spanish, let alone in indigenous languages. The California Occupational Health and Safety Agency, which is charged with ensuring occupational health and safety of, for workers, uh, had a regional office in Santa Barbara and Ventura counties, and they actually closed their regional office because the conditions were too hazardous for state their state investigators. They didn't open up that regional office until pressure from these migrant groups and th- their elected officials pressured Sacramento to reopen it. So that that just shows you sort of the inequity and sort of these toxic and dangerous hazardous situations that farm workers and other outdoor workers are being asked to enter. And what's also important is we need more uh, field investigators that the state has. I believe uh, there was only 26 Spanish-speaking field investigators in the entire state of California. And as far as we know, there's not one that speaks any indigenous languages. So those are maybe the language justice, cultural competency, identifying these communities before disaster, ensuring that they're included in disaster preparedness programs and plans. So proper air quality monitoring that I mentioned earlier and assuring these individuals are protected should they continue to work in some of these toxic conditions. Okay. 
that's fantastic. And I want to go more broadly here as we kind of wrap up the, the, our discussion. And are there any other states that, because obviously the shortcomings from the federal government we've, we've gone over, but are there other states, and I'm thinking of other potential climate impacts like flooding of river systems or hurricanes, and I, we generally think of Florida and maybe Louisiana, but are any states doing this well with undocumented workers? Are there any good models out there whatsoever? I think New York, in experiencing a lot of hurricanes, there's been a lot of news coverage about the impacts that are happening to undocumented migrants, both not only just Latino, but also Asian, API, Asian Pacific Islander uh, communities as well. And uh, New York, I know it has, has, has created also disaster relief funds for COVID and other disasters like hurricanes. And I'm not sure if it's actually going to be permanent but they're also, just like California, are trying to lead the way in some of these changes. Other than that, it's mostly at the local scale, and it's largely being driven by civil society, community-based organizations creating their own disaster relief funds, expanding on the mission and scope of organizations to include direct services for disaster relief. So unfortunately, just California and New York, to some extent, are the ones that are probably taking a leadership role. Oregon, I know, that has suffered from major wildfires, has a large agricultural community and undocumented population. It's also uh, trying to lead on this issue, but I, I'm not sure if they have any substantive policy actions yet. Okay. So this is, you know, it's an emerging area, but it's more of an academic exercise at the moment. Is the probably familiar with the idea of managed retreat? Uh, do you have any sense that that community is thinking about how undocumented workers will play into this idea that, okay, we are going to have this structured retreat from areas impacted by climate change? Have you been able to kind of poke around in that at all? I think it, by de facto managed retreat is, is happening in terms of like maybe climate, um, like climate gentrification or climate displacement. Because a lot of these individuals live in very densely populated areas that are are somewhat affordable, even if multiple people are living within the same household. And when a a fire comes in, at least from the California context, a fire comes in, destroys the neighborhood that these migrant and other immigrants are living in. When they do the rebuilding, oftentimes it's not at the same density. So they're, they're forced out from the region, not because of managed retreat policies, because of economics and inequities in our planning urban development systems. Either one of the housing's not being, there's an existing housing crisis, affordability crisis in the entire state of California, particularly in high set out areas in wine country or in coastal areas like Santa Barbara and Ventura. And the housing's not being built fast enough, rebuilt fast enough. And when they do rebuild it, there was some research from some of these groups that showed that the building permits that were being issued were at densities that were much lower. And so they're building bigger houses bigger apartment buildings that, of course, are going to be unaffordable. So managed retreat is happening in a de facto managed, de facto fashion. These individuals are being pushed out further and further from these regions. Because even with what the threat of wildfires, places like wine country or living next to the beach are still highly desirable in California. I do like to assume the the hat of, you know, the glass is half full once in a while. And I, I recognize, as you described, things could get a lot worse for undocumented workers. But I wonder, do you think there's an opportunity to deal with longstanding issues with undocumented workers and immigration reform because of climate change? Could it create some real 
you know, you're there out there prescribing very, you know, these policies. I'm not being super naive. I know things are probably going to get a lot worse before they get better, but could climate change actually be a catalyst to get some real immigration reform? I hope so. I, I, I think it's a catalyst for advocacy. Climate change is, again, this global nature of climate migration, climate refugees, them leaving their home country, coming to the United States, if it's California, New York, or, of course, Texas or Florida, where a large majority of Latino and indigenous people from the Americas migrate to, they're disproportionately forced to address climate change because they're the ones at the front lines. They're the ones first and hardest hit in many of these communities from uh, the impacts of climate-induced disasters, hurricanes, wildfires, heat waves, drought. And again, in those conversations that I've been having with migrant rights organizations that are working side-by-side with environmental justice groups, they're talking about, again, because of these years of wildfire planning, really, and then the compounding of of a pandemic at the same time has really bolstered their awareness of uh, they need to be in this sphere and space of disaster planning, climate adaptation planning, and climate change, because it's not going to go away. And many of them are really aware that heat waves, in particular, that the heat that's uh, causing stress on their bodies and, and on their crops, uh, their livelihoods of where they're working, to drought also is affecting their livelihoods from, from, from drinking water, from being able to, some of these communities in agricultural areas of California during the last drought didn't have water to flush their toilets or take a bath let alone, or wash their dishes, let alone to drink water that was already contaminated before the disaster happened. And that drought's affecting their livelihoods and their jobs and the crops. And then, of course, these wildfires. So I think they're all very aware of this and, and it's pushing them to become, have these intersectional campaigns that link immigration reform to climate change mitigation and adaptation. And th- these groups are wanting, even though they have limited capacity, wanting and or being forced to enter into the sphere. So I do see this as a positive, one of the positives out of this, you know, horrible conditions that these individuals experience from disasters, the ability to advocate to network and to link different campaigns to one another to have hopefully down the road a more equitable outcome and equitable policy and political systems as well. Well, it just seems to a lot of us, a lot of the immigration policies are designed just purely to be cruel. And, you know, you would hope at some point, like, all right, we're going to get serious about climate adaptation. And then immigration reform just kind of benefits through that process. And again, that's completely naive, probably thinking, but it's just no more of this sort of nonsense. I mean, it it does seem like cruelty drives a lot of this. And so when we try to get really serious about climate change, more people are going to benefit. We'll see though. I want to do one last pivot here, and I want to talk just a bit about your, your work there at UC Irvine. Your students, what are, what are some of the research areas that your students are working on? And you know, I'm sure you have some graduate students. So what, what, what kind of work are they doing? Yeah, so the next two major projects that, that I, I've been uh, working on is looking at these disparate uh, disaster outcomes to other socially vulnerable populations or marginalized, stigmatized populations. And a paper that I just wrote with one of my graduate students, Leo Goldsmith and Vanessa Raditz, looks at the disparate impacts of disaster on the LGBTQ plus population. So specifically how disaster relief infrastructure and policies, particularly at the federal level, are creating discriminatory outcomes for LGBTQ or queer individuals. So that's been an exciting project that we're kind of opening up the door 
particularly from an intersectional approach. Oftentimes you think of a gay uh, LGBTQ community as being wealthy. It's sort of, there's this myth of gay affluence, particularly white, wealthy gay men, cis gay men. And in our paper, we really hone in that, you know, well over 40% of the LGBTQ population is people of color. And similarly, the same very factors that make other people of color vulnerable to disasters from education, poverty, healthcare status, immigration status also intersect with being gay or queer. And so we really highlight that. And then we also highlight sort of inequities in disaster policies at the federal level and also the over-reliance of faith-based organizations for disaster relief shelters and other assistance, and particularly in areas and churches or organizations that are not very welcoming of the LGBTQ population. So really advocating for changes in that. A second project I'm doing... I just wanted to throw out, just stay tuned. We've got an upcoming podcast episode where you and I and your graduate student, Leah, will dig into that topic. So I'm looking forward to that, but I'm sorry, go on. And then a second project is not so much in dealing with disaster. It does have an element of disaster plans, but we're looking at this very policy innovation that occurred here in California, Senate Bill 1000, which requires city and counties, planning departments that have socially vulnerable populations or environmental justice populations to include a chapter or analysis on environmental justice and their general land use plans. So general plans or general land use plans are essentially the blueprint uh, or vision of how a city wants to grow and develop in terms of urban development. And they often look at, you know, transportation, housing, green space, air quality, but without usually without an equity lens. So under SB 1000, Senate Bill 1000, California, it became the first state in the United States to require that equity lens in our general land use plans. And so we we did an assessment of how cities and counties are implementing that law and addressing equity and justice in their urban planning, general land use plans. And we're, we're seeing some great opportunities to talk more about historic uh, environmental racism and injustices more opportunity for community engagement and have more urban planning policies that are directed towards these environmental justice communities. But at the same time, again, everyone thinks that California is so progressive, but we have a lot of agricultural, rural conservative areas that this concept of environmental justice is very in line with racial justice movements. And there's uh, some hostility towards environmental justice and sort of uh, wanting to do a performa or water down or sometimes even suppress this law and not really substantially engage on the environmental inequities or environmental racism that's occurring to these communities in, in these cities. So that research is forthcoming, and I look forward to engaging on that with other folks out here. I sort of want to do a, do a call to action as we wrap this up. And so I have a lot of local government people, state government people, even federal government people who are in the business of developing adaptation plans or updating these adaptation plans. And I think a lot of them are still trying to figure out when you look at climate justice, equity issues, and the research that you're doing, any advice to them as, as they start this process, or if they might actually update an existing plan, how they could really integrate the kind of work that you're doing in, in, into what they're doing? A great question. And I forgot to mention about that analysis of SB 1000. We also look at climate action plans and disaster or hazard mitigation plans to see, to see if they're integrating it with their land use plans and highlighting connections to equity and justice. 
And for the majority of the disaster plans, very few. We reviewed 35 cities and counties that are required under the state law to have this. And they're not integrating their land use plans with environmental justice and disaster plans for the most part. So I think first and foremost is uh, really being honest about uh, what is the history of environmental justice in that area, educating internally. One of the key findings that we had when we were also interviewing some of these planners and consultant planners as well, working on environmental justice, is that first and foremost, that internal Education needs to take place, particularly in regions where their elected officials or even the planning director or manager are not very welcoming of these ideas of climate justice, environmental justice, and really showing them why there's a need and and particularly a historical need to address these issues. And then from there, you know, going through the process and doing a contextual analysis of what is environmental justice mean to that particular city or county? What is it? Where is it? And what does it look like? And doing that hand-in-hand with community-based organizations, even if they're not an an active environmental justice organization, there might be a migrant rights organization, there might be a housing organization, or there could be some type of other public health social justice organization that they should be reaching out and talking to 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 get their perspectives on what environmental justice has meant to them and how they're addressing these questions and the work that they do. So I think, you know, it takes internal processes because there's still a lot of hesitancy among planners and other kind of environmental analysts to have an explicit environmental justice lens. You know, this idea that environmental science is colorblind and the work that that they do benefits everyone. And so you don't need an equity lens. But as we know, that that's not really the case. There's even among science itself, uh, there's inequities about what questions we ask and what data we gather and how that excludes uh, certain people and populations from that very process itself. So I, I think that internal process education needs to happen, you know, from elected officials to managers to planners, building strong relationships with community-based organizations, even if there's not an active EJ organization there. And then, you know, working hand in hand on uh, that historical analysis and possible uh, solutions to address uh, climate or environmental justice. Fantastic. Uh, and you guys listening out there, have at it. That's great advice. And I think there's so many resources, but I just think there's not a lot of political will sometimes to do these things. But I think people who want to do that, there's opportunities for them to influence the adaptation planning process. So that's great. Michael, the last question I ask every one of my guests, if you could recommend one person to come on the podcast, who would it be? And in, in, in terms of climate adaptation? Yeah, if it's my podcast. Yeah, related to that. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Susanna Danda at the the Community Water Center. She's the executive director of the Community Water Center, and she's dealing with drought at extreme drought issues that have happened. And it would be, I think, really interesting to get on the ground perspective of that question you asked me, how they're factoring in climate change and climate adaptation on the ground in their own work. Okay. I will get some more information from you on that, but fantastic recommendation. Michael, this has been a pleasure. You're doing really important work. I'm looking forward to our future conversation. Thanks again for everything that you're doing. Thank you, uh, Doug. It's such a pleasure to be here and to talk to your audience about these important issues. And I'm really honored. And thank you again. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Dr. Michael Mendez for coming on the podcast. It's really important work. He wasn't able to go into that much detail, but I appreciate his recommendations for those out there doing adaptation planning. 
There are resources out there to help you effectively consider climate justice issues, like undocumented workers in this case. I hope each of you take it upon yourselves to make that extra effort. I've been involved with adaptation planning at every stage, local, state, federal, nonprofit organizations. There's still so much sausage making going on, but that also means you have flexibility to include language and guidance in areas you wouldn't traditionally think about. I'm looking at you, natural resources sector. Also, it was discouraging to hear about the FEMA's policy of not providing funding for undocumented workers. It works against the big picture of what they are trying to do, helping these communities rebound. I hope there are policy efforts underway to rectify that. And I also like Michael's point about engaging with local groups who have much more experience working with these populations. Take a look at the show notes for more details on what Michael is doing. Okay, don't forget to check out Wondrium, the streaming service where you can watch or listen to lectures, programs, and courses. There's a free two-week trial. Use a the link they generated for the podcast, wondrium.com slash adapts. Check it out. In fact, look in my show notes. All right. If you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work in a whole podcast, consider sponsoring America Adapts. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. I frequently go on location to record these sponsored podcasts, which allows you a wider diversity of guests to participate. You will work with me to identify experts that represent the work you're doing. I've done these with various groups like NRDC, University of Pennsylvania at Wharton, World Wildlife Fund, UCLA, Harvard, University of Florida, and various corporate clients. It's a chance to share your story with all my listeners who represent some of the most influential people in the adaptation space. Most projects have communications written into them. Consider budgeting in a podcast. Podcasts have a long shelf life, much more so than a white paper or conference presentation. Many groups work into their communication strategies. Previous sponsors have used the podcast to communicate with their own members, board members, and even funders. My previous sponsors have found the process really fun since there's a lot of creativity involved. So putting podcasts together is a lot more exciting and satisfying than putting a paper together. Hey, foundations, I'm looking at you and all those projects you fund. Please reach out and let's have a conversation around this and you can learn more. Okay. I'm also hearing from listeners that they have started listening to the podcast in the last few months or the last year, and that means they have missed out on a lot of bountiful material in my archives. So I'm going to dig in the vault when I can and highlight two previous episodes in case you need some recommendations. In episode 96, oh, this was a great episode. The Once and Future Republican Party, Conservatism and Climate Change, I was joined by Bob Inglis, former Republican congressman from South Carolina and now executive director of Republic EN. We talk about his history of being a climate advocate in the Republican Party, why the current GOP is so skeptical of climate science, how evangelicals' attitudes about climate change are influenced by their support of former President Trump. This was a really cool episode for me. And in episode 86, Return of the Climate Jedi, famed climatologist Dr. Michael Mann returns. Dr. Mann is the author of the famous hockey stick climate research that has become one of the iconic images in the climate movement. This was Dr. Mann's second appearance on America Daps. In this episode, we discuss winning the Tyler Prize, which is the environmental equivalent of the Nobel Prize, the quickly emerging issue of climate adaptation, academic freedom and climate denial, and the new generation of outspoken climate scientists in the worldwide climate youth movement. So definitely check out the archive. All right. If you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, virtually or in person, I speak. I love it. I do keynote presentations. It's a chance to story, share stories from the podcast. If you guys are trying to figure out what adaptation resilience is all about, I can come and talk to you. And all the guests that I've talked to has given me just unique perspectives on what's going on out there and in my own experiences working professionally doing policy development. So definitely check me out at americadaps.org. Okay. On that note, I love hearing from you. I've been hearing from random people. It's so fantastic, be it on social media, Twitter, sending me emails. I love it. Just gives me a sense of out there who's listening. If you have an idea for an episode or a guest, email me at americadaps at gmail.com. Send me an email. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.